Specialty Stories, session number 187. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I continue to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty, how they got there, what they like about it, and so much more. This week, we have another great guest, Dr. James Hotelling, who is a urologist who studies men's health and transgender surgeries. We talk all about how he got into the field, his passion for transgender surgeries, and so much more. We start the conversation with how Dr. Hotelling got into urology to begin with. So I, I kind of have an interesting background. Both, both my parents are physicians, um, and I didn't have physician parents who were like, you have to go into medicine. They actually were kind of like, I don't know that you want to go into medicine. It's a lot of school. We worked a lot. Um, so my mom passed away when I was 17. She was an adolescent psychiatrist. And then my dad actually was kind of had two careers. He was a Navy combat pilot. He flew A7s uh, in Vietnam, then the reserve for a while, and then went to med school and ended up being a pediatric ear, nose, and throat surgeon. He was a professor at Loyola in Chicago for decades. He's now retired and lives in Bend, Oregon. But um, so I I went to Dartmouth for college. I was a double major there. Um, physical chemistry and history. And I toyed with the idea of getting a PhD or an MB PhD, decided I liked people better, knew when I went to med school that I wanted to do something sort of surgical. Um, actually did a full year of research in orthopedic surgery. Um, you know, thought about neurosurgery, but it was, it just kind of wasn't for me. ENT, I didn't sort of same thing. It kind of came down to ortho or urology. And basically I decided, decided I liked you know, soft tissue surgery better. And, and urologists generally have a better sense of humor. Um, and are, um, they're both actually really fun groups to be around there. The, the personalities of both specialties are very similar. Um, but that, and I had some mentors who were neurologists. So that, that's kind of how I got interested in urology. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around urology that you're constantly fighting among residents and medical students? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, probably that it's, I think the biggest thing they don't understand, it's, it's, it's a, it is a subspecialty, but like we have a huge range of surgeries that we perform, right? And, you know, we see a bunch of patients in clinic. There isn't really a medical equivalent to a urologist, right? Like, you know, we're dealing with, you know, if you have ball pain, even if it's not surgical, you go to see your urologist, right? I mean, things like that. Yeah. So I think it's that, um, and we do procedures as simple as like a vasectomy or a cystoscopy looking someone's bladder to 14 hour, you know, urinary diversions to eight hour transgender surgeries to complex robotic surgeries um, to microsurgical stuff. Um, and there's a huge amount of technology and kind of innovation there. So I think the biggest myth that we fight is that we're, like, I don't think people like um, medical students will spend time with us and be like, oh my gosh, I never realized that the scope of what I could possibly do here. Yeah. 
Interesting. What are some of the biggest uh, or the biggest trait you think that leads to someone being a good urologist specializing in transgender surgery, specializing in, in men's sexual health? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I think you have to have a passion for it because I think patients can pick that up pretty quickly. I think you have to have really high uh, emotional intelligence and really good sort of um, people skills, because these are really sensitive issues and you have to learn how to navigate that in a way that isn't going to make people uncomfortable, whether that's with humor or realizing what the dynamics are with, you know, the partner, if they're there for a male fertility evaluation or erectile dysfunction. Um, I think that's really, really critical because if you make these folks feel uncomfortable, then it's, it's a whole other thing. And I think I think especially for the trans community, um, you know, some empathy, you know, being able to sort of say, like, I realize that this is, you know, I, I think it's very, um, a lot of, a lot of the trans patients that I operate on are like, yeah, I knew when I was three or four, like my earliest waking memory is like, I knew I wasn't, you know, you know, I was a trans woman or a trans man or, or whatever. I mean, one of my patients, when we did his, his trans masculinizing surgery in the recovery room, you know, he woke up and he actually was very emotional and was like, you know, every day since I, th- I was three, I, I went to bed praying, I would wake up with a penis and I finally, you know, feel like I woke up with a penis. But I think having that, you know, emotional connection um, and having the capacity for that and, and understanding, you know, what these, what a lot of these patients are going through is, is a big component of it. And there's a little bit of being like a psychologist or a therapist for, for both aspects, for sure. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you? Uh, it's very varied. So I, if you look at my sort of FTE or my full-time equivalent, if you look at my time breakdown on paper, I am 50% administrative. I'm 30 I'm like, we'll call it 30% funded by the NIH to do grants, which would put me at only doing clinical stuff one day a week. Uh, and the reality, that's not what happens. Um, a typical week would be Monday is either like academic stuff or doing two um, vaginoplasties. So trans feminine, like bottom surgeries. Um, Tuesday, I'm either doing, um, I'm either operating or doing sort of academic stuff, which is basically a bunch of zoom meetings and research. Like this morning I've been on three or four different meetings. I've like helped write some parts of a grant. Um, you know, we're all like working from home doing this now. So that's, you know, that would be Tuesday, Wednesday. I have a really big clinic. It's like 40 patients, um, with, and I have like a couple of nurse practitioners who are there and a fellow. So it's, I have a lot of help, which is great. Thursday I operate. And then Friday is another day. That's like, you know, sort of academic and administrative stuff with a lot of meetings. Yeah. For a student who may be interested in the physiology, the anatomy for potentially becoming a urologist, but doesn't trust their hands necessarily to become a surgeon, how how much of that can be taught, do you think? I think a lot of it can be taught. Um, I mean, one of my mentors used to say that residents break down into one of three categories. You know, one category is they're just they're in like the top 5% and they're just super technically gifted and you, they could have no training and they'd end up being really good. Right. The other, um, you know, the, the other vast majority of people has like have some aptitude and you can teach them, do you know what I mean? And they will just get progressively better. 
then there is another small percentage where it's just not going to work out. And I don't even know if it's so much a hand-eye thing. It's more of a judgment thing. Yeah. You know, it's understanding anatomy and, you know, tissue planes and, and, and spatial anatomy. But I mean, one of the really good predictors actually of being a successful resident is being a, a fairly competitive athlete who did team sports. Um, because a lot of like, you know, running an OR is similar to like being the captain of a soccer team or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Where, yeah. and, um, so yeah, I think a lot of it, a lot of it can be taught. And I think in urology, I mean, there's urologists who almost never go to the OR, like their whole practice is office-based procedures and mm -hmm. a lot of patients in clinic or, or sort of minor procedures in an outpatient surgery center. Um, but, but those urologists still had to have enough aptitude to get through a residency, which is not not trivial. Yeah. For call, what does that look like for you at a big academic center? Not bad. I take one to two weeks every six months. Um, we have fellows and we have a bunch of faculty. And when I'm on, I basically will go in to do the surgeries, you know, to see the patients, you know, do surgeries or if there's urgent stuff, but it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a good deal for us. Are there any late night calls where you're going in at two o'clock in the morning? Yeah, there are most of our, there are only like three or four urologic emergencies. Um, one is torsion where the testicle flips around and can have no blood supply and you have to got open the book. Just open the book. Open. You got <laughs> it. You got to open the book. So there's that there's, um, Fournier's gangrene, which is like flesh eating bacteria of the genitalia, which is, which is very rare, but it does happen. And then the most common thing we go in for are stones. Mm. Somebody gets like an obstructing kidney stone and needs to stand and it's not that bad. It's like a 20 minute procedure. Mm. Um, so it's not terrible in a typical week. I might be in, in the middle of the night once, maybe twice. A lot of the rest of the stuff is kind of like semi-urgent where it needs to happen in the next 24 hours, but it, you know, it's, it's not like this has to happen in 15 minutes or, yeah. you know, yeah. do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Um, depends on the day when you ask me, um, uh, yes and no. Um, I, you know, I have a, I have a seven and I can, I can do, you can't do that. There's some like climbing pictures. I have a seven and nine year old. My wife's a physician. She's a rheumatologist. Um, it's definitely a balancing act. Um, I bike a lot. You know, I used to do like Ironman triathlons. I do a lot of backcountry skiing, a lot of mountain biking. You know, this week I went mountain biking Friday and long road bike rides Friday or, or Saturday and Sunday. Um, you know, I'll take some, I take my kids backpacking with llamas, you know, once or twice a year. So I, I, I do, but it's hard. I think the hardest challenge is kind of, I have so much stuff going on. Um, and a lot of this, I will give the caveat is self-induced. Um, you know, I, I kind of have like often the ultimate like FOMO. I'm like, Oh, I gotta do that. I gotta do that. It's cool. And you know, I'm 41 and it's taken me to, to 41 to be like, you know, it's okay if you don't do everything. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to find a balance and it's hard to like shut off. Cause it's like, I'll get like 130, 150 emails a day. And it's like some of those, I love those I can just delete, but some of them I can't. So it's, it's sort of what I've learned is that it's really important to sort of be like, okay, like after 6 PM or whatever, I'm not going to deal with any of that, you know, for the rest of the night and like have time with my family. And I used to, when I started my career, I would work like two thirds of the weekend day, both weekend days, every weekend. 
Um, and as my kids have gotten older, I'm just not willing to do that anymore. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned working with fellows. What, what makes a good fellow? Well, that's a good question. Um, I would say um, someone who gets along well with people, right? Because we're like with this person five days a week for a year. Yeah. So if they have some major personality issue that comes out pretty quickly. So getting along with people, being you know fun to be around, um, being humble, like hardworking, good with patience, you know, good technical ability, but a lot of that can be taught. Um, you know, being interested in research and having some aptitude there is helpful. Although that's not kind of depends on the fellow, right? Some fellows want to just crank through clinical stuff and others want to try to get NIH grants and, you know, it, it's certainly not one size fits all, but those are probably the biggest things. And also just being coachable, yeah. you know, being able to say, okay, well, you did this here. Don't do that. You know, that kind of stuff. Cause a lot of surgery at some point becomes muscle memory. It's kind of weird. It's like, you know, to teach something to someone else, I'm like, well, just do this and I'll just do it and it will work. But I actually have to go through my head and be like, okay, well, what am I, do you know what I mean? Like actually doing. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I, I could teach someone to tie their, tie their shoes right now. That's just, it's just in my fingers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What does the, the training path look like to, to get to where you're at? Um, well, so I went to college, I, I went to Duke for medical school where at Duke, everyone has three years of clinical and a year of research. So I did a research there. Then you got a match into urology residency, which is very competitive. Um, and I don't know the exact stats, but it's, it's among the, it has been the most competitive, but it's among the most competitive specialties. Um, and then residency is five or six years. When I went through a lot of the programs were six, a few were five. Now, most of the programs are five years. The six-year programs have a research year. So it's that. And then it's a, a fellowship that for what I do is like a year. Most of the fellowships are one to two years. Some of the oncology fellowships are three years. Um, so it's it's a solid, you know, if you just wanted to go through and go into private practice, it's five years after med school. If you wanted to do a fellowship, it's anywhere from you know, six to eight after med school. Yeah. And, and your fellowship, is that the transgender surgeries fellowship or? No, mine wasn't. You can't actually do a transgender surgery fellowship. They're just starting to happen. My fellowship was in male infertility okay. and like reproductive medicine um, and, and men's sexual health at University of Illinois, Chicago. So I did that. And then I, my partner, Dr. Myers, who's a reconstructive urology urologist here actually might be a really interesting person for you to talk to too, because he had, a, he's had a really interesting career path, you know, kind of like worked like building houses for a couple of years after high school and then was a medic and then went to college later and then, you know, took some time off and then went to med school. He's now the division chief of urology here. Nice. Um, but we basically went to a couple of the programs that were doing it and learned how to do it that way and then started doing it. Yeah. Which isn't very uncommon. I, I think a lot of students aren't necessarily aware that these kind of training uh, weekends are, are kind of a, an opportunity for surgeons to go hone their skills and things like there, there's some person in one part of the country doing these. It's like, Hey, come, come learn from me for a little bit and I'll take yeah. it back to your home, home program. So, yeah. That's good. Very interesting. So for subspecialties, you, you, you mentioned kind of male infertility for your subspecialty, uh, fellowship training. What, what other fellowship training is there? Yeah. So you can do for male, you can do sexual medicine, male infertility, kind of the same thing. You can do reconstructive urology, which is like big reconstructive surgeries for like people who've had their urethra crushed and can't urinate or who have 
bladder issues and either bladder reconstructive. You can do female urology, which is a lot of female urinary incontinence and prolapse. You can do endo urology, which is sort of kidney stones and lasers and, you know, and they often do BPH. So, so laser procedures on the prostate. Um, you can do oncology, um, which is cancer. You can do pediatrics, which is exactly what it sounds like. You can do um, minimally invasive, which is like robotic and, you know, laparoscopic. And there's, there's some bleed over in, in those different areas, but those are kind of the, the general, um, let's just make sure I'm not forgetting one. No, those are, those are kind of the different areas. Yeah. For the osteopathic medical student listening to this, what do they need to do to potentially overcome any negative bias out there to match into urology? You know, we'd have to look at the specifics, but I think they now go through the same match, you know, that our urology folks go through that, that meaning that like, if you went to a not, you know, a non-DO school, they go through the same match. I mean, I think doing some research can help where we see the biggest problem with med students trying to match urology is they don't have any urologists at their home program. It makes it hard. Yeah. Um, is that yeah. for exposure or for a letter of recommendation? Both. Yeah. I think it's the biggest thing is letter of recommendation. I mean, it's just a very small world, Yeah. right? So it's, it's, you're going to get a stronger letter if you worked with somebody for two years and, and that letter really carries a tremendous amount of weight. It's a small enough community where like a lot of phone calls will be made on the back end between programs of saying, Oh, what did you think of this med student? Cause from our standpoint, it's a big investment. And these programs are taking like two to four residents a year. So if you have one person who has a major issue, it's, it's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. For the future primary care docs listening to this, what do you wish they knew about what you're doing day in and day out? Let's, let's talk specifically for your transgender patients um, to, to help yeah. their patients. That's a great question. You know, we're all kind of figuring this out. I mean, even stuff like, okay, so I do a vaginoplasty, so male to female surgery on on a woman, but she still got a prostate, right? Did she follow up with like yeah. an OBGYN or a urologist or a primary care doc? I mean, I think the biggest thing is like, you know, we have a lot of videos on our website, but like, look, and if you're seeing these patients, like take the, take the 30 minutes, to, like watch one of the videos and see what the anatomy is actually like. Mm-hmm. So you understand like what you're dealing with. Cause it's very confusing to people. What's what, and where things are. And I mean, even the question of like, do these trans women still have a prostate? Like, yes, they do. And they can get prostate cancer. And I'm sure at some point, some of them will, you know, now it may be lower because they're on, you know, hormones and everything else, but, but there's big issues there that we haven't totally figured out. We're fortunate at the university where we have a whole transgender surgery program. So we have like mental health professionals and speech therapists and primary care docs and facial plastic surgeons and plastic surgeons doing top surgery and urologists and plastic surgeons doing the bottom surgery, but they're, um, yeah, it's a lot. You know, I think just understanding the anatomy is probably a big part of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Besides primary care, what what other specialists or specialties do you work the closest with? Um, I work probably the closest with reproductive endocrinologists. So OBGYNs who do female infertility. So we we see a ton of patients um, from them on the fertility side. And, you know, the, the unit of treatment for fertility is a couple. It's not the man, you know, or the woman. They're it's really the only area in medicine where there there's two people yep. that you have to factor into the decision and the treatment for one may vastly change based on what the other one's profile looks like. Interesting. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into to urology and transgender surgery? 
Mm, wow. Um, hmm. I would, um, I would, in terms of urology, I would probably say, um, you know, just, I have a much better understanding for kind of the scope of, of it now that I'm in it than when I started. And I think, I think, unfortunately, in our current training system, like residents don't really understand, like when you imagine your residency, like you don't fully understand what you're signing up for. <laughs> I mean, you just don't, right? You, you can't, you're, you're too young, I think, generally, chronologically, and you just can't have had enough exposure. I think, especially as med students, due to medical legal constraints, like med students can't do as much as what they did in the past, especially when there were paper orders and other things. And there's, you know, that's, that's, that's plus minus, but I think, um, yeah, I think just understanding like the full scope and, and I think also looking at it on the other side, being is eight years in now as, as faculty and an attending, like that, you know, you will have complications and, you know, sometimes really bad stuff happens no matter what you do. And you, you have to get to a point where you can learn what you can deal with it appropriately and like move on. Um, because otherwise it's, it can be really devastating. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a, a urologist specializing in transgender surgeries and male sexual health? Yeah, probably. Um, so it's different on the, on the male sexual health, the reproductive stuff, the research stuff is fascinating. It has like huge implications for kind of the human race and health and other things and really, really cool. And we're just getting to the point where we can like actually treat some of it. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer on the with sort of medical therapeutics. Um, on the surgical side there, it's microsurgery. It's all, you know, suture that's finer than a human hair under the microscope. It's really delicate, intricate, you know, and the end product is a baby. Right. So it's, it's very rewarding when the patient's like, and I have a patient who like wrote a book about their experience and I, I get baby pictures and that's super cool. Um, on the transgender surgery side, it's probably um, seeing how happy patients are once, you know, the dust settles and, you know, it doesn't take very many patients who are really appreciative to make a huge difference, you know, um, you know, I mean, one of my patients brought in this cake after her transgender surgery and the cake just said, I'm a girl, you know, and she brought in this big thing and, and, you know, people are often tearful and, and it's cool to see them get there. And I think for me, it's also really rewarding. Like these, the trans folks have a huge amount of courage. It is yeah. not, I mean, it is a massive surgery they are signing up for um, and just to, to go through it. And I think we're, we're lucky because, I mean, you're probably, you know, I'm a little bit older than you, but, but we're, not we're the age. same age. <laughs> you're the same age. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it was a very different era when I grew up, you know, I mean, my kids will be like, oh yeah, that kid, you know, was a boy last year. And this year, you know, I came to school and they were a girl and yep. it's like, no big deal. And yep. when you and I were growing up, I think it was a very different world. Yeah. Yeah. It's changed for the better. There, there's a lot of misconception and misinformation out there about, um, transgender surgeries and transitioning and regret with transitioning. Do you, do you see that at all with, with your patients? I haven't seen it. I mean, we started doing these surgeries in I think 28, let me just think, I think 2018, yeah. um, sort of the spring of 2018. I haven't had a single patient who I've done, um, the surgery on come back and say, Oh, I really didn't want this. I mean, we also like follow the WPATH criteria, which is the sort of standardized criteria to, 
people have to meet to have surgery. So it's not like people are coming in and this is like some, you know, last minute decision. I definitely have talked to other surgeons who have had patients you've had regret, but I personally have not yeah. seen it. Yeah. Good. What do you like the least about your specialty? Um, well, the good news and the bad news about what I do is that nobody's dying, yeah. right? The, the bad news is that it's all quality of life and, you know, lifestyle stuff. So my patients can be, um, you know, demanding and, and have a lot of questions and have very high expectations. Like when you are having elective surgery, you don't tolerate anything going wrong, you know, and things very rarely go wrong, but, but things occasionally do. So that, that can be the hardest part, just managing the, like we're lucky in that I have nurse practitioners and nurses and fellows who can help with a lot of the patient messages and that stuff. But, um, I could not have the type of practice that I have and do some of the other academic things without significant help due to the volume of, you know, calls. I mean, our group that sees 200 patients every week gets thousands and thousands of messages every month. Yeah. Um, it just can be a lot to keep up with. Yeah. Do you see any major changes coming to the field that, that students that are coming up through, through training now need to be aware of? To help I mean, you. I would say in the, yeah, in the transgender space, the only big change could be depending on what happens like politically. I mean, insurance is now covering those surgeries largely, and that could change and that would have a drastic impact, you know, on our ability to do these surgeries. I think that's unlikely, but, but that, that is a possibility. Um, so that's, you know, that's one, you know, that's one potential thing. Um, in the male infertility and sexual health, I mean, that is booming and I think will continue to boom. Um, I think the erectile dysfunction stuff, sort of Peyronie's disease, penile curvature, like the baby boomers are all hitting their years where those are major issues. You know, the average urologist is like 57. <laughs> so there's a huge shortage of urologists. Um, you know, so that will, that will drive that. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think that the insurance coverage for the transgender surgeries is probably the biggest one. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be doing what you're doing? Um, it's funny. <laughs> uh, I think I probably would, uh, if I didn't, I think I would be very interested in like doing entrepreneurial stuff or, you know, I, I kind of have that hardwiring in my brain and, yeah. um, I think I probably could have been very happy doing you know, venture capital or being a serial entrepreneur, I could kind of do, you know, some entrepreneurial stuff on the side, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, I feel really lucky in that, you know, I, I enjoy taking care of patients, but for me, like the most rewarding thing is probably working with like fellows and residents, uh, and even med students, although they're not usually with us as long, but seeing people who aren't very good at something become really good at something is really cool and really rewarding. Uh, I'm thinking about like, they can go influence things and that's super cool. I, I really like that. And then I really like, um, you know, the, the research stuff and kind of that my job is fairly, you know, varied. Um, but yeah, yeah. I don't awesome. know. I guess let me put it to you a different way. I don't, I don't think anyone has a sense of what they're getting in for, what they're in for when they start medical school. I mean, if you look at it, it, was, I mean, it was 11 years before yeah. I was finally done. It's a long time and a lot of life happens then. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is true. Uh, any last words of wisdom for the, the students listening to this on their journey? Um, hmm. 
you know, I would say, I think if this is something you're really interested in, like go seek out somebody who's, you know, could mentor you or, you know, I mean, we get requests all the time from different students and other people to come watch us in clinic or the OR. And we always say yes. And I think you'll find that almost anyone else would be very similar. I mean, we were all there at one point, right? And and it's not very hard to have somebody just, you know, watching cases in the OR or seeing stuff. Um, but if it's something you're interested in, I would say, you know, reach out to people, you know, doing that. We have at Utah, we have a great website that has all kinds of resources on it, both for urology in general and, you know, matching to residency and then also transgender stuff. But yeah, I think, I think connecting with people and developing that sort of relationship and seeing where things go. All right. So there you have it again, Dr. James Hotelling, a urologist who studies or practices men's health and transgender surgeries. Great conversation today about the fields and so much more. Hopefully this has introduced you to another aspect of medicine that maybe you didn't know existed. If you like these, go check out our e-shadowing sessions over at eshadowing.com. They're very similar to specialty stories, but they're live and we are able to cover cases because there's lots of visuals that you don't get here on the podcast. So go check out eshadowing.com and our archives are available at eshadowing.com slash archive. That's uh, will take you to a YouTube channel where you can watch all of our past episodes. The current eShadowing, you can earn credit based on watching 45 minutes of the session and passing a quiz the first time you take it. Again, that's eshadowing.com. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.